when they saw the sign. It's been in your mind, hasn't it? All week, I'm sorry about that. I am sorry, if you're new, you don't know what's going on, just ask somebody, they'll tell you, they'll sing it for you. But glad that you're here, glad that we are gathered together. We're gonna jump into God's word as always before we do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace in our life. God, we do thank you that we have stories in the Bible of how you worked and how you moved in people's lives and how you were patient and gracious with them. And uh, God, thank you that those are encouragements to us of how you work with us and how you are patient and gracious with us. And, and so God, as we open your word now, I pray that that's what would happen, that you would speak to us and help us understand where um, we have needs and we have um, just the overwhelming one desire, but two need to hear from you and to see you and to have you move in our life. And, and God, I pray that you would do that. You would help us. And I pray as always, you would help me to communicate your truth in a way that is honoring to you and is helpful to all of us. And ask you to fill us with your spirit, God, because we know that without you, without your Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see the truth as we're going to talk about today, God, our hearts are hardened. And God, we know that uh, without you, we will remain that way. So would you open our ears and our eyes to see and to hear what you have for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you got a Bible, you can open to John 6. If you have no idea what I was just singing about, it was a part of a message that we were looking at last week in the first part of John chapter 6. It was a rather famous story that occurs in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And he takes five loaves and two fishes and does the miracle of multiplication as we talked about because he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, but he was also testing his disciples to see where their faith was, if they understood and trust him. And, and then when that happens, when that miracle happens, all the people were like, I saw the sign. And that's where the dumb ace of bass song comes from, all right? The, the reference there, the, the idea that when they saw the sign, then they wanted Jesus to, to be king. Literally what the text said in, in John chapter 6, they were trying to make him king. But at the end of our story last week, we talked about how Jesus isn't down with their cause. He's, he's not down with what they wanted him to do. And so he sends the crowd away. He sends uh, his disciples away. Then he goes up onto the mountain to pray because Jesus was having none of it about them making him into their God. And we talked about how there's kind of two errors that can happen. We can kind of construct a Jesus to our liking. In one way, we kind of take away some things about him. We kind of deconstruct our faith. But then also, we can also add to it and say, oh, well, Jesus, if you can do that with, with fishes and loaves, what could you do with my cause? If you could do that with that, what, what could you do with this thing that I think would be really awesome for you to get in on? And that's where we have to be careful sometimes. I heard one pastor friend of mine say that Jesus didn't come to take sides. Jesus came to take over. He didn't come to take this side or that side. He came to take over for us to be on his side. And so the context of the story we're going to see today is that, that Jesus sends his disciples away. He sends the crowd away saying, I'm not down with your cause. I'm not down with necessarily what you want me to do with this cause or that cause. And I'm not even saying those causes are necessarily bad, but they were trying to make Jesus into this political figure that they wanted him to be. And he says, no, I'm not. I didn't come to bring your kingdom. I came to bring my kingdom. And that's really the whole message of the gospel of John. As we talked about last week, Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who's initiating the kingdom of God. And that story, when he goes up onto the mountain to pray and he sends his disciples, is the context and backdrop for our story this week. So John chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 16 through 21. And this story, again, may be a rather familiar story. It is talked about in some of the other gospels. In fact, I will reference that, particularly Mark, and then another story in Matthew. It's also Mark chapter 6. So let's go, John chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. It says, when evening came, for his disciples 
went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now, I told you this before, if that was in Hebrew, you would say, Kafar Nahum. So be careful with the six feet roll around you if you want to try that, all right? Don't spit on somebody, all right? But it was dark. That's important. It was dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. That's an important phrase, which is why I highlighted. The sea became tough because a strong wind was blowing. So again, Jesus goes up. He sends his disciples into the boat. And John tells us it's dark. It's at night. And then while they're going across the Sea of Galilee, a strong wind comes up and and it's getting kind of dicey. Now, if you don't know contextually or geographically about the Sea of Galilee, um, when we went there, and I'll reference this later, I I understood it more because it's kind of nestled in between two mountain ranges and the Sea of Galilee itself sits 600 feet below sea level, higher than still the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth. But it, it just it makes for a place where storms and winds and high pressures and low pressures, I'm not a weatherman, um, but they kind of meet. And then in that place, winds and, and, and these kind of pressure systems can create almost in an instant a storm to come up to where if you're out on the water in a boat, it's not a good place to be. So that's what's happening, but it's also dark. Now, John tells us that because that just adds into the fear, right? It's one thing to be out on a boat and it's starting to get choppy. It's white capping and, and they didn't have, you know, boats like what we have today, just wooden boats that they are the manpower of. It's one thing when you're out there and that happens. And some of these guys were fishermen, but it's another thing to happen at when it happens at night, because then you don't have LED flashlights, right? They, they didn't have LED bars that they had wired in on the front of their boat. Just imagine how, you know, some redneck would make that one look, right? I, I can just picture it in my head. Look, sounds pretty awesome, to be honest with you, but they didn't have that. And so it's dark, and John tells us Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, obviously, John is writing this from a later perspective, because if he hasn't yet come, then that's a setup to the story that he is coming, right? He's telling you he hasn't yet come. But why do you think John points that out? A couple things that I want to point out here, and anytime you're reading a story, um, again, this is my interpretation of it, of what I think is going on here. They're in a scenario where Jesus put them, don't miss this. Jesus put them there, but they're in a scenario where it's dark and it's fearful and things are crashing against them, literally winds against them. And metaphorically speaking, if you kind of think about that, the darkness in the Bible is always a reference to something more, not just it's physically dark, although it was, But it's also a reference to like confusion. It's not clear. I don't know what's going on. You could even say a lot of times darkness is a reference to evil because the idea of darkness is just simply the absence of light. And and Jesus is the light. And Jesus isn't with them. So if you think about this in your own life, you may not have ever been in a boat on the Sea of Galilee at night and the waves are crashing, but you might have been in another scenario where you felt like you were in over your head and Jesus is nowhere to be found and it's dark and you're confused. That's the backdrop of the story that I want us to think about. We've all had those circumstances in our lives where We felt like we were in over our head. We got out into the middle of something. It's not what we thought it was. It's dark. We're confused. We don't know which way to go. And where is Jesus? Right? You're like, bro, you just described the last 15 months of my life. Right? Yeah, I mean, we've kind of almost collectively gone through a season like this. This is why I think this story is fitting. 
But there's something I want us to understand about this, and this is part of what I was getting to last week when I talked about God's ways and how he works, is here's the thing that we have to understand. We've all been in those types of scenarios and circumstances, and Jesus' own disciples were in those scenarios and circumstances in literal ways. But here's the part that might mess with you theologically. They're exactly where Jesus sent them. So if Jesus sent them there, then they weren't there on accident. They were there on purpose. And this is the part that we have to learn how to start to incorporate into our theology that God just might send you into circumstances that you're in over your head, it's dark, you're confused, and you feel like he's on the shore and forgot you. Look at what Mark says in Mark chapter 6. Again, you don't have to turn there, but this is just a reference to the same story. Mark gives us a little bit more. Mark says this in 6 verse 47 and 48. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. You get kind of geographically what's happening here? There in the boat, on the sea, Jesus is not. He's alone on the land. But look at this, verse 48. And he saw Jesus that they were making headway painfully. I don't know about you, but I just feel like the Bible is spot on sometimes. Because I just said that we've all been in those kind of scenarios. If you were to describe the scenario, how was it, man? It was, bro, it's like I was making headway painfully. For the wind, now don't miss this, was against them. Against them. They were making headway painfully. Now, those two words, it's interesting. You know, obviously Greek is a different language than English, and so the way they sentence structure and words are different. But those two words are verbs. Which is what's interesting about that is, you know, in English we would use a verb and then an adverb, and, and Greek functions similarly, but but these are two verbs, and so Contextually, it's almost like the text is saying they were, they were working, they were actively working to, to make headway, they were moving forward, but at the same time, they were making pain. And, and this is where I think it's important for us to understand why God would put us in these circumstances is because... It's only in those circumstances where we feel all alone, we're working harder than we've ever worked before, and yet we're getting nowhere, and we're like, where is Jesus? It's only in those types of circumstances that we can actually truly understand our real dysfunctions. We can't get to the other side without Jesus. And that's what I want you to see and understand of why Jesus put them in that scenario. Jesus put them in that scenario, not because he didn't know they couldn't make it without him, but they didn't know that. This is how so many of us start out. We're like, I'm good, right? Just push me out to the sea. I mean, all of us, when we leave our parents' house, hopefully when we're 18 and not 38, right? And, and we're like, I got this. I'm good. I don't need you. I don't need your traditions. I don't, a lot of people, sadly, I don't even need your religion. I don't need your Jesus in my boat. I, I'm rowing. I'm good. And we get out about halfway through and we're like, hi, so good. This is harder than what I thought. It was interesting. I was reading a, a fellow pastor and he was talking about how his son, who is now an adult, came to him and said that he was uh, able to reduce his electricity bill. And he, he dropped it down like by half. And the dad asked the son, how, how did you do that? And he's like, well, I'm kind of embarrassed to say. And he's like, why? He said, because I just turned off the lights and turned up the air. And then the dad laughed. And he's like, well, that's what I tried to get you to do for 18 years when you lived with me. Because the dad was always complaining to the son about the high electric bills. It's interesting, once he was out on his own and he had to pay for it, then he was like, let's turn the lights off, y'all. Right? Yeah, come on, dad. See, like, preach it. 
Because it's not until you set off on your own that you realize you really can't do it on your own. That's when you start to do this thing that we call grow up. And this is where I want us to see kind of the deeper part of the story. And if you've been around revolution, I've been saying this for 11 years now, but it's not until we're in those situations that we start to understand how dysfunctional we are. Because here's the definition of dysfunction. The harder you try, the worse it gets. The harder you try, the worse it gets. That's the definition of dysfunction. So if you're looking at your life, you're looking at your marriage, you're looking at your job, you're looking at whatever, you're like, I'm working harder than ever before. And it's getting worse. Dysfunctional. Now, here's the good news. The point of the storm that Jesus put you in is to show you your dysfunction. The most, let me say it another way. The most dysfunctional people are the ones who don't know they are. We we talk a lot about self-awareness, but you want to understand something. Self-awareness, and even the Bible would say this in Galatians chapter five, fruit of the spirit, self-control. Anything that has self at the center of it is not a product of self. It's the product of something else, of someone else. So self-awareness only comes from others' awareness. Hey, bro, your breath stinks. I'm now self-aware that my breath stinks. Hey, bro, you're dysfunctional. I'm now self-aware that I'm dysfunctional. And and this is where, uh, I'd just like to submit to you, a lot of believers wreck their life because they walk away from the very people that could have helped them become functional. They're out in the sea alone, making headway painfully. What's really interesting about this word painfully, it actually means to torment or to torture. Now, a lot of us have grown up in situations where we may have been tormented or tortured. But one thing that I would like to submit to us as a group is there is no one who has tormented you more than you. There's no one who's tortured you more than you. When you were rowing in the night thinking, I got this. And here's Jesus on the shore. He's seeing it. And he's like, how's that working for you, bro? You're making headway painfully. And what I mean by that is you're making just as much Pain is you are progress. And here's what's important for us. Jesus put them there. Jesus put them there. In this story, the disciples did not get there by accident. They got there because Jesus said, get in the boat. It was dark and said, go to the other side. Sometimes we may have got there because we felt like we were doing what God wanted us to do. And this is where we really have to dig deep. You got to follow me here. We really got to dig deep into our theology because sometimes in the middle of the darkness and confusion, you're like, what is going on, God? I followed you here and I'm making pain and torment and no progress. It's not working. You're on the shore. What's going on? And this is where we got to have a place for this. That you're right where Jesus wants you to be. Now, there was a phrase there that said it was against them. Now, that word there, against, let me just give you some definition of it. It means to be opposed to, contrary, against, in an opposite direction. Now watch this one, hostile, hostile. So here's the disciples trying to get to the other side and they face a storm that's hostile to them, that's against them, that's blowing against them. The reason why they're making headway painfully 
is because there's headwinds that are strong. And here's what I need you to know. Sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, God will send us out straight into the headwinds to show that we can't even make headway. And this is where you're like, well, I don't know if I like that God does that. You don't have to like it. You just better accept it. Because remember, I told you he didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. And the thing that he came to take over was your life. This is why I don't like the phrase, accept Jesus into my heart. Have you accepted, like you got this little small Jesus in your heart. No, no, no. It's not you accepting him. It's you giving over. You're now trusting in him. What you're saying is, I'm no longer rowing. I'm no longer in control. Right? All I do is row backwards. I'm dysfunctional. Jesus, I need you. But see, they wouldn't have realized that if they didn't have something opposing them. They, if they didn't have winds against them. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down because it's important. The storm is part of the story. The storm is part of the story. Now, we'll get there in a minute. But everybody likes to go to the part of the story where Jesus calms the waves, where Jesus calms the winds. But I don't want to go too quickly to that before we, watch this, sit in the boat for a minute. And think about it like this. If Jesus stopped the wind then at least it begs the question, did he start it? If he's the one that stopped it, was this, is he the one that started it? If he's the one that made it go away, is he the one who brought it? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God brings evil into your life. He's not the author of evil. The Bible makes that incredibly clear. He doesn't tempt anyone. But the idea of the sovereignty of God is that everything passes through his hands. And so whatever is coming to you is coming to you for his glory and your good. So if it's coming, it's necessary. Against them. Because see, here's what I know. No one ever grows from lifting light weights. In fact, I thought of a cool preacher. For, it's almost like a dad phrase, preacher phrase, or one and the same. If you want to be a spiritual lightweight, lift light weights. If you want to be a spiritually shallow person, then don't lift anything heavy. But here's what I'm trying to point out to you. You have a God that loves you enough to say, no, we're going deeper. We're going heavy. I'm taking you out to the middle. I'm taking you out to a place where you're going to be over your head. You don't know what to do. In fact, it's dark and you're confused and you're working harder and going in circles. And that's right where I want you. Now, don't miss what Mark also said. He saw. Now, it's dark, right? It's dark at this point in time. How in the world could Jesus see that they were making headway painfully? How can he see that? So he got like x-ray vision or something? No, he's God. In fact, the Bible says darkness is as light to him. So again, this is, this is comforting to me, but to some of y'all, it might be scary as heck. God sees you in the dark. Now that's comforting to me because what that tells me is God sees me at my worst. He sees my futile attempts and yet he died for me anyway. He sees me in the dark. See, for some of us, they're like, oh no. 
I thought I was doing a pretty good job of hiding it. I would just like to submit to you, you might be hiding it from your spouse, but you're not hiding it from your savior. You might be hiding it from your groups. You might be hiding it from your small group leader. Let me go. You might even be hiding it from your pastor, but you're not hiding it from him. You might think that you got God figured out. You know, you show up on Sunday, even Thursday, you tip a little. You might even start tithing. You're like, Lord, I got you. But I'm going to keep some area on the side. Remember that message a few months ago? I'm going to keep this little thing on the side over here. I mean, you got everything. I got this, Lord. (laughs) And I just got to wonder. I mean, God is so patient. He's sitting on the shore with every generation of people. And he's like, here we go again. (laughs) These daggum humans. Every time. They make a little Bitcoin on the market and they think they're good. Right? They just hit their new personal maximum on the bench and they think they're strong. And what I want to say to you is God sees all that. He's not unaware of your painful progress. But again, this is why it's comforting to me. It's not scary to me. It's comforting to me. Because the quicker I can get to the end of myself, I get to the beginning of him. The quicker I get to the end of me making painful process and I accept the fact that God is going to bring things against me, but they're for me. I can reframe everything in my life. Now, think about this in terms of a parent. Speaking of fathers earlier, uh, you know, I'm... 17 years into this parenting journey. And there's something that I've realized that if I consistently make it easier for my son, he will not grow up. He will not be mature because I have made it too easy for him. And so I have to, as a dad and Lindsay as a mom, has to be okay with the fact that I've got to let my son struggle. Now that's tough, isn't it? Those of you that are parents, I don't know if kids play on playgrounds as much as we used to back in the day, but I remember playgrounds. I mean, I went to daycare at six weeks old. I mean, I grew up on the playground, right? And so I remember those times where it was eat or be eaten, right? Like, it was rough on them playgrounds. That merry-go-round, you know, that thing's spinning. You're like, bro, this is, this is rough out here. I don't forget, I, I went to, I, I graduated out of the one program that I had gone to until I was 12. Then my mom had to take me to the Y. And we weren't singing YMCA. And it was on the other side of town with a bunch of people I didn't know. And within a week, I find myself in trouble. Not me in trouble, but like people making trouble for me. Hiding in lockers, trying to figure out how money to get through the day till my mom comes back. You got to struggle. And here's what I know. I don't really know if I was a good parent until my son turns 35. This is a freebie. You don't even know you're getting a parenting conference today. And I'm halfway through the journey. But I don't know if Lindsay and I did good until my son is mature enough at that age to handle the struggles that are going to come his way. And it's tough as a parent, because again, if I show up at the playground and some kid is picking on my kid, you better believe everything in me wants to come off the top rope and handle business. Local pastor beats up 12-year-old, right? Like, (laughs) it's hard. I'll never forget, I told my wife one time, and she kind of looked at me weird. I was like, you want to know one of the best things that could happen to Jackson is if he just goes to school and someone just punches him in the nose. She looked at me, she's like, are you strange? (laughs) Yeah, because then it's like, like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until you get hit in the mouth. Then what? 
And here's what I'm trying to say to you. God is not an unloving father because he puts you in storms. In fact, what I'm trying to get you to see is not only did he put you there, but he's behind the thing that's against you. He's behind the thing that's against you. Now, I don't know how it all works. He doesn't do evil. He doesn't bring evil. But here's the good news. Let me say it to you like this. That thing that is against you is in his hands. It's in his hands. He's got the whole world. You sound pretty good. Well, if he's got the whole one, then that means he's got the winds and the waves too. Now, let's go back to John chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, a couple things here. Jesus is walking on the thing that is against them. This is what I was saying. Jesus is walking on the thing that's drowning them. He's on top of the thing that is putting them under. And he's coming near to them. So two things. Not only does God see you, not only is he aware of everything that is going on and your struggles to try to row across without him, he also comes to you. And here's what he comes to you and says, it's I, do not be afraid. Now, what's interesting in the Greek, you know, this reads, it is I, but it's the same word. This is the Greek expression of the Hebrew phrase in the Old Testament where God told Moses, I am. When God said to Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and Moses is like, who should I say sent me? I am. You are what? Yes. <laughs> I am. <laughs> this is what's amazing about our God. The only thing to describe him is that he is. He is what? Yes. He is this, 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 this. He's everything that you need. And here's what I also love about what Jesus says to them. He says the most often repeated command in the Bible. Do not be afraid. See, people who have a shallow view of God, spiritual lightweights, they read the Bible as just simply a list of do's and don'ts. But they totally miss the fact that the number one command of the Bible is do not be afraid. Not do this or don't do that. Do this thing. Don't do this thing. You know, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Do this. Not those rules. One command. Don't be afraid. It's almost like the one thing that God wants us to know more than anything is that if we got him, we got what we need. See, there's a difference between being scared and fear. Scared is an emotion and that's okay. It's okay to be scared. But fear is a spirit. Paul tells Timothy, for God did not give us a spirit of fear. A spirit of fear. And you can look that up and the word spirit is there. So what that means is there is a spirit on the planet that tries to get us to fear. And so there's a difference between being scared and being fearful because being scared is I have this feeling that I'm afraid but I'm going to trust you anyway, and I'm going to go. But fearful is paralyzing. Where you get to that place, you're like, I don't know what to do. Now, look at what Mark also tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 50 and 52. It says, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. See, and Mark gives us one more phrase. That phrase, take heart, means have courage. Be courageous. 
I am is here. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. This is what I was telling you earlier. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. About the loaves? This is what had happened earlier in the day. Why? But their hearts were hardened. See, that phrase right there is everything that you need to know about the storm. Why did Jesus put him in the storm? Remember the process we talked about last week, if you were here, when Jesus made the miracle happen? There's a process that he did. He took the bread. He blessed the bread. He what? I don't think you guys remember. Let's, let's try that again. If you're new, the answer's broke. All right. <laughs> he took the ble- bread. He blessed it. And then what? Broke. broke it. So he could give it. See, the bread was symbolic of what he really breaks in the process, which is our heart. See, this phrase here where it says their hearts were hardened, it's the idea that your heart is calloused. Um, Ezekiel calls it a heart of stone. Uh, In today's world, we might call it, you know, you're so closed off or closed-minded. Not in the way that the culture would use the phrase, but, but the idea of like, you've so isolated and protected yourself that God can't even get in. And so God loves us enough to put us in storms as a part of our story. See, every story has a storm. Every one of us, the storm's gonna be a part of our story. And what I'm trying to get you to see is when the storm comes, don't misunderstand what God is doing. He doesn't hate you. He is not against you. He's for you, but he will bring things, circumstances, people. Let me go one step further for the church. Culture against you to break your heart. Now think about this, again, from a cultural standpoint. If you're a Christian who is breathing, and by that, I mean you're still alive on planet Earth, Have you noticed the cultural headwinds have gotten stronger against Christians? Have you noticed, to take our name, a cultural revolution that's happened? Some people would trace it back to the 60s. But obviously you could... You don't have to go far. In fact, I've had a lot of conversations with people that that have said things like this. The culture has gone insane, and it feels like it's happened overnight. And to some degree, it has, but in some degrees, it hasn't. And yet, here's what the attitude that most Christians take against the culture. They see it as something to fight. So we come up with phrases like cultural wars and which side are you on? Are you on the right? Are you on the left? Are you on the good? Are you on the bad? And then here's what's crazy. Both sides want to claim Jesus. Well, Jesus is on the side of this person. Well, Jesus is on the side of this person. And if you have been around here, I say this phrase often, but on either side of the road is a ditch. And then I just heard someone say this like, Yesterday on a podcast I was listening to, I was like, oh, this fits great. He said, for every one mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. Think about that. I done got philosophical up on y'all. How what? Oh, one mile, one mile of ditch. Yeah, one, one mile either side. That's two miles. Yeah. So here's what I'm saying. For every one mile of truth, there's going to be two miles of lies. 
and just start multiplying that. Miracle of what? Multiplication. See, God doesn't just multiply the miracles. He also allows the messes to be multiplied. Because those messes, those storms, those lies force the church to stand for truth. Let me, let me say it to you like this. What if as the church, we quit griping so much about the headwinds of the culture and we started submitting to the process and realizing that it was actually God who brought them? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't call out lies in the culture. I'm not saying we wouldn't, shouldn't speak for truth. No, that is truth. This is truth. That's a lie. That's a false. How do you know that? Because Jesus says it. I'm not saying we shouldn't point that stuff out, but here's what I'm saying. What would it do collectively to the church if we realized that God was the one behind all those wins because he was wanting his church to grow up? He was wanting his church to quit being spiritual lightweights. He knew that his church needed wins against them to understand how much his church needed him for them. See, everybody wants Jesus in the boat when there's a storm. But not everybody wants Jesus in the boat when it's calm. Look, at, let me reference this in Matthew. This is a different story, but you kind of see what the same thing that Jesus does. Matthew 8, 26 and 27. It says, and he, Jesus said to them, why are you afraid? If there is one thing that I think that God would say to the church today is, why are you so afraid? Because we don't have this. We don't have this. And whoever you think we is, like the last presidential term, people are like, we don't have the presidency. This presidential term, we don't have the presidency. You misunderstood who we is. We is not a political party. We is the kingdom of God. And he's not on a side. Why are you so afraid? Why are we so afraid? You have little faith. Look at this. Then he rose and rebuked. I love this. Rebuke the winds. He will rebuke the things that you're rebuking, that are rebuking you. And there was great calm. And then the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and sea obey him. That phrase, what sort of, means what kind of. Another way you can translate it is from what country. See, God is trying to get us to be loyal to a greater country. A greater kingdom. Now again, I'm not saying we don't lament what's happening in our culture. We don't stand up for what is true and right. But here's what we don't do. We don't take worldly tactics to fight spiritual storms. thinking that we somehow need the presence of sinful men to help the Christian message get forward. Have you not realized whatever your side is, it's only going to be painful headway? Why are we so afraid, church? And when will we realize that God brought that? Because when he brings those, let's go back to John, last verse, verse 21, then we're almost done. Verse 21, then they were glad. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was that land to which they were going. Now, John doesn't tell us, but Mark does. He doesn't stop the seas until he's in the boat. But once he tells them, do not be afraid, and he, they see that, okay, it's not a ghost because they said in Mark that they thought he was a ghost. Then, oh, we got the miracle multiplier. Of course I want him in my boat. What's interesting, it says, then they were glad. This word here, glad, in English, it, it looks like it's past tense. But in the text, it's, it's 
desiring something. It's, it's something that hasn't happened yet. Let me say it to you like that. This, then they wanted him in the boat. Maybe, just maybe, the Lord has brought the cultural headwinds to get the church to want Jesus back in the boat. Because if we're not careful, churches can Jesus out of the boat. And this is one of the saddest indictments the Holy Spirit left a long time ago and the church didn't even notice. Because they made some other message the message. And this is what, for every one mile of road, there's how many miles of ditch? And sometimes Christians are the most gullible for lies that seem godly. Of course you want Jesus. It's like a bunch of people started praying last November. But where were you praying the November before that? It's like I joked last week. Everybody was mad that they couldn't go to church when COVID hit, but yet where were they before COVID? And if that's you, just act like you've always been here. It's all grace, all right? But it's always the most vocal that are the most shallow. And all I'm saying is, church, if we have a God that control wins, what are we afraid of? Because I love the next line. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let me make this point and then we'll be done. We can be glad because he will get us to where we are going. We can be glad because he will get us to where we are going. Where are we going, church? To the other side. It's almost like we can sing like Adele. Let's just, hello from the side. Because remember that phrase way back when it said, Jesus had not yet come? See, there's a tension in the Bible called the already not yet tension. And it's a theological concept that says this, in one sense, it's already done. But in another sense, it's not yet done. Which one is it, pastor? Yes. So here's what I'm telling you. In one sense, we're already at the other side. Jesus beat death. Jesus conquered our last enemy, death. He came back from the dead and he sits at the right hand of the Father right now controlling everything that's going on. Jesus is on the other side. And we can have the faith of knowing we're already there. But not yet. But if we got Jesus in our boat, we can be glad that we will get to where we're going. And there's not a thing that a country, a president, a mob can do to stop it. So give your life away, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the truths that are in the scriptures that you bring the storms. And help us, this is deep waters here, God. Help us to understand that although the things that are coming are not good, that you are. The things that happen in this world are not good. But you're good and you're in control. And sometimes the waves that are crashing against us are being sustained by the wind that you're blowing behind them. And so if the waves are crashing against us from the wind, we can relax 
and not be afraid and know that nothing is happening to us that is outside of your ability to control. So we don't have to be afraid. In fact, we can surrender to it. We can accept our privileged position, like Hebrews 12 says, that you loved us enough as a father to discipline us. You brought struggles. So help us. But God, we also pray right now for anybody who doesn't have Jesus, because they do have reason to be afraid, because they won't get to the other side without him. No one looking around or talking here as we close, but if you've never trusted in Jesus, the invitation today is to come and surrender your life to the one who can get you to the other side. But don't just come because of that, but be glad that he saw everything and he put himself in your place. He took the storm. That's why he can control it. He took the storm, your greatest threat, which was sin and death, and he beat it. So if you trust him, you don't have to be afraid. Somebody looking around or talking, if you want to trust Jesus right now, you can pray with me. You don't have to do this out loud, but you can say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent Jesus into my storm. I'm trusting in Jesus alone to save me. I want Jesus. I realize I can't do it. So would you come take over? I give you my life. No one looking around or talking, if you just prayed that with me, very simply, you can just lift your hand. Let us know that you trusted Jesus. If you're in one of our locations, just lift, thank, thank you. We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. In a moment, you'll have an opportunity to text us your information. Let us know who you are. And those of us who have trusted Jesus, the call of the message today is keep trusting Jesus. I don't know when he's going to calm the winds. But what I know is that if he's with me, he's in control of them. So I don't have to fear them. In fact, the better prayer would be something like this to say, God, help me to surrender to them. Help me surrender to the process of breaking my hard-heartedness that you want to do. I put my heart in your hands again. Do what you need to. Father, we ask you and we thank you and we love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.